You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. His name is Bodai. What is it? He's a who, not an it. Then who is it? Do you like air? It's not alive. Do you breathe? Where do you come from? Earth, 1,000 years in the future. Out of the heavens comes a mystical and powerful force. It is called Bodai. We're going to get Bodai. Yes, we are. Unanimous. Go. The law requires that I take them to my headquarters. Only a lonely one. Are you sure about that? Take a better look. Armed with the power of the magical being Bodai, a young band of rebels is our only hope to conquer the forces of evil that would destroy the planet Earth. The magic. The mystery. The adventure. Solar Babies. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me is Mr. Rob St. Mary. Can I have a glass of water, please? Also back with us this week is the host of the F This Movie podcast, Mr. Patrick Bromley. Hey, guys. I got my skates on. This week, we are talking about Solar Babies. Set in the distant future where water is scarce and orphans are plenty, Solar Babies was released in 1986 and directed by Alan Johnson. The film stars a remarkable group of young actors who love to rollerblade and play skateball, a game that seems to mix lacrosse and field hockey. When the youngest of the group, Daniel, discovers a glowing orb from outer space, everything changes. Patrick, as our guest, when was the first time you saw Solar Babies, and what did you think? So I did not grow up with Solar Babies. This is a movie that was on cable a lot when I was a kid. Somehow I missed it. I had not seen it uh, for the first time until maybe two years ago. And what is this movie? I don't know what this movie is. This is a crazy mix-up of so many different ideas and science fiction tropes that are half attempted and accomplished. I I don't know what this movie is. How about you, Rob? Well, you know, I've always been a fan of those little bite-sized pieces of chewy caramel. Oh, those are sugar babies. Uh, Solar babies, no. Uh, I didn't grow up with cable, so I never saw it when it was on cable. And um, it's part of those, uh, and there's birds in the background, there's part of those, um, you know, sort of mid-80s films that I have no sort of reference to because I would have been about eight when this thing came out and I don't ever remember going you know I really need to see Solar Babies because the title just wasn't inspiring so no I never saw it until you wanted me to watch it for the show the title Solar Babies amazing yes I don't know the first time that I saw this I don't know if I saw this on cable or rented it on VHS but it seems like Solar Babies was with me for a long time. And yeah, Patrick, you were the one, I think, that I don't know if you were joking around, but you said, hey, you should do Solar Babies. And now we're doing it. You called my bluff, sir. And I can't believe that I actually managed to find somebody to talk to me about Solar Babies. We'll be hearing from the screenwriter, co-screenwriter, D.A. Metrov, later on in the show. And, uh, you know, we tried to get 
everybody that was involved with this movie. You know, uh, Richard Jordan, sadly, no longer with us. We've talked about him before on episodes like Logan's Run and Dune. But yes, uh, Jason Patrick, who we just talked about recently in our um, After Dark My Sweet episode, wouldn't come on for After Dark My Sweet or Solar Babies, unfortunately. So... No luck there. No from Jamie Gertz. No from Lucas Haas. No from James Legros. No from Peter DeLuise. We're getting no's everywhere. And of course, Adrian Pazdar, we tried him for our Near Dark episode. He wasn't game for that, nor was he game for Solar Babies. Any luck for the executive producer on this? Because when I was looking at the credits, I was like, oh, Brooks film, Mel Brooks. Yeah, surprisingly with that one. Uh, the director of this, Alan Johnson, only directed two films that I'm aware of. This one and To Be or Not To Be, starring Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft, which was kind of, for me, the movie that really put Mel Brooks under for me for some reason. Like, that was the one where it was like, this is the beginning of the end. And years later, here I am talking about the other film that Alan Johnson directed. So imagine that. He was a uh, the regular choreographer for Mel Brooks movies. And uh, for a choreographer, I got to say, he's not a very good director. Nothing wrong with the choreographer moving into directing. I mean, we've seen cabaret we've seen all that jazz we know you know lenny all these things there are choreographers who can be great directors well you know the thing that's interesting with him being the choreographer and he was all the way back to the producers was that he probably choreographed one of my favorite parts of blazing saddles which is the french mistake which of course is directed by dom deloise and now he has peter deloise in this film so i don't know uh, any uh, connection there with the uh, the singing and dancing troupe and uh, the deloise family with the uh, director E.T. meets Mad Max and uh, Rollerball. That's what I wrote down. So that's what I came up with. Okay, so um, so that that's kind of how I explain it. The uh, if you want to get into kind of plot, I feel that that voiceover in the beginning from Charles Durning seems like a tack on. Like maybe they had this whole plot and they had shot this whole thing and then they showed it to a test audience and they go, ah, I don't know what the hell is going on with this thing. But there's this voiceover from Charles Durning where he sort of explains the universe we're in. It's like. 4,000 years in the future and or you know, 2,000 years in the future or something like that. It's like the year 4,000 something. Uh, water is scarce. Uh, the kids live in these orphanages, which are basically nothing more than training grounds for them to become productive citizens. And the set design looks like a cross between Dune and uh, very arabesque and then at times sort of Mad Max and the kids like to play the sport as you said they find the orb and then um, they go on this adventure where there's various sort of tribes out there and they try to figure out what's up with the water and then there's like future Nazis that they fight against and that's about all I can get out of it the E-Protectorate are these guys apparently there's, there's the police guys that are after them they keep winding up in like Towns or settlements where there are a lot of bad people. I hope no bad people show up. There's a lot of bad people in this movie. And they're like, it's so bizarre, man. Because it's like, so they find the glowing sphere. Daniel Lucas Haas finds this glowing sphere. And it cures him of his deafness, which... 
I think I probably watched this movie about five times before I even realized that he was deaf for some reason. And then I watch it again over the last couple of days. I'm just like, why did I never realize that before? They make such a big deal out of it. Maybe the intricacies of Solar Babies had me confused, but finally figure this out. He's cured of his deafness, and Bodai, the the glowing sphere, can make it rain inside of their quarters, which is pretty big deal since they have no water, and that's like their ration of all this stuff. And of course, I kept thinking of um, you're talking Mad Max. I kept thinking of Fury Road with that whole. Do not, my friends, become addicted to water. It will take hold of you, and you will resent its absence. They definitely resent the absence of water in this thing. And then it's strange because they're being spied on by Darstar, not Darkstar, Darstar, who's played by Adrian Pazdar. Oh, God, with that hair. That hair is horrible. <laughs> he's, he's got, like, the long hair, and then he's got, like, a side ponytail going on, and he can talk to birds. He's very mystical. He's a member of the Chitari? The Ch- Chitani? Uh, yeah, I guess the Chitari are from Avengers. So he's a man, uh, uh, he's a Chicano, basically. And he takes the orb and goes, so... Daniel then follows him, so the rest of the Solar Babies are kind of following Daniel, who's kind of following Darstar. And eventually, they all start splitting up and getting captured by different people, and then they'll regroup at a place, and then they'll get captured again. And then some of them will find their way back here and there, and the other thing. They're all orphans, so... There's a lot of room as far as who actually is who. Eventually, Tara, the one girl amongst them, finds her real father, who I kept thinking that he was going to turn out to be a villain at one point, but I think I'm kind of giving too much credit to the film. They fight the bad guy and win. The bad guy, who's Richard Jordan in this case, Sarah Douglas, who shows up um, out of nowhere. She just kind of is... His buddy, I guess, his evil friend, who also makes a big uh, Terminator-esque robot that is going to try to drill into Bodai, and I guess so they can destroy it. And did I did I miss anything there? I think that's everything. It's like they just watched every other movie from the 80s and took five minutes out of each of them and assembled them into Solar Babies. It feels like there's a lot more stuff going on with this movie. Bodai also all of a sudden is known as the Sphere of Longinus. And so I'm just like, okay, are we supposed to be drawing a comparison to the Spear of Longinus? The spear that pierced Christ's side and has shown up oh, then? There's there's such a big reference at the end to the idea of this thing as a Christ metaphor that I just... I was like, yeah, okay, the ball is a Christ metaphor. I just, <laughs> I, I, it was just so obvious. It just hammered you over the head, it, especially at the very end. He can cure hearing. Right. So there's that. And then, what is it? The I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and ruin the damn film. So if you haven't seen it, uh, you know, you better turn it off now because I'm going to ruin it for you. Spoilers galore here, That's folks. right. He, uh, the, the line is, he hasn't left us, he's with us. He's always with us. And there's this whole kind of glow that they have after the sphere kind of like goes up into the sky and all this. So to me, I'm like, that's, 
that is definitely a, a Christ metaphor angle in some way. And then there's other bits in there with um, Jamie Gertz's character and, and Jason Patrick where there's sort of this um, like jungle that they go to, they end up in this sort of like jungle area. And I'm like, Oh, okay, this is sort of, you know, we're going to borrow some like Adam and Eve kind of things going on here. And the idea of, you know, the tropic uh, jungle kind of thing is this was the original idea and everything got corrupted and everything. So, I mean, there's, there, there's a decent amount of reference, I think like that. And then, and then also at one point there's um, what is it? One of the nomadic tribes or whatever that they end up dealing with, They've got a um, an Islamic symbol on one of their uh, tents. They've got the the crescent and the star. So, and then some of the uh, uh, design of the of the characters' costumes is very arabesque with their sort of head wraps and things like that. The orphans have names like well Daniel, who's famous for you know being in the lion's den, all that kind of stuff. And then we've got Jason, and I think we're supposed to take a reference to like Jason the Argonauts. Metron is another hero from history, but then I'm like, I don't know where Tug and Rabbit kind of fit <laughs> into this thing. They're from uh, Peter Pan, right? They were, they came over from they're just Lost Boys. Big Updike fans, right? You know, the, <laughs> and these guys. Other than Jason Patrick and Lucas Haas and Jamie Gertz, I mean, the Peter DeLuise and, I mean, the James LeGro character, basically, like and Claude Brooks, they all just kind of fade into the background. Like, every once in a while, James LeGro will say something really snarky, and that's about it. You know, it's like, otherwise, like, Peter DeLuise, I just feel like he's relegated to the back. Like, I, I never got a sense of any of these people as being characters. They just were kind of... The extra players on the Solar Babies team. The fact that the movie runs just under 80 minutes, it seems like, to me, always is a sign that maybe a bunch of stuff was taken out. And I had an opportunity to read the screenplay, thanks to uh, Mike, helped me out with that. And it, it, it follows it pretty closely, so it's not like there it was missing a bunch of stuff. But it takes all these crazy shortcuts where... Daniel is introduced as deaf and then, I don't know, 90 seconds later is cured of his deafness. And so the moment doesn't register because we haven't lived with him as a deaf character. Jamie Gertz disappears from the movie for four minutes and comes back as the leader of the resistance and has discovered her. She has lived an entire movie in the time that she's off screen, which is a total of about five minutes. It takes these massive shortcuts in order to get to the next thing as though it's in this rush to, uh, to the finish line. And, uh, I feel like there might be some ideas there. I mean, they're heavy handed, you know, Finally, the movie that 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 reimagines Christ as a as a glowing ball. They're heavy handed, but at least there's some ideas there. But they're all just bypassed in order to jump to the weird next sci-fi generic trope. Every silly bit of dialogue that is inside of Solar Babies was not in the script. They call themselves eco warriors. Eco taken from what? Rabbit. Hey, if they took it, they should give it back. (laughs) (laughs) That is not in the script. It's like, you know, uh, they call themselves eco-warriors. Eco taken from what? And Metron's like, ecology. Bam. Okay. And it's like that you actually get more of the background and you kind of understand this whole thing about like the the echo warriors versus the protectorate and you actually get more of them 
playing their game because like we see them play their game a couple times and then that's it and it's like well shouldn't this be in the rest of the movie shouldn't there be other points or like even like bodai providing water because bodai provides water in that one scene and then you never see he's never needed again at all they just follow him around there's no reason for them to follow him other than to spread the good news i guess but (laughs) there's no reason and so there's a couple points where he provides water where you know they play their game where we're getting more about tara and her lost father and all this kind of stuff so i swear it's like you're right there are dumb shortcuts being taken all over the place and they seem to just be like dumbing down what could be a very heavy-handed script but it really doesn't need to be dumbed down as much as it was in the final product and it's just all the goofy stuff just seems to come from post screenplay i don't know if i can fully blame alan johnson for this stuff but it definitely seems like the screenplay had a lot more going on between its ears than what we ended up with on screen and again yes it might have been way portentous it might have ended up being something like you know the silent flute aka circle of iron where it just feels like the philosophy is beating you over the head kind of stuff but at least it would have had a little bit of substance. I feel like the almost the entire movie, at least the finished product you had mentioned, the goofy stuff, that to me describes the whole movie from the title on down. It's all goofy stuff. It's just a collection of goofy stuff. Adrian Pazdar stars Pazdar star uh, Pazdar stars <laughs> hair and his owl. I'm not even positive what this character is doing in the movie. It's like he's a transplant from a different film who wandered onto the set of Solar Babies and every once in a while they filmed him. He doesn't really serve a function. You know, none of the dots really connect. The game doesn't really have anything to do with the story being told. Pazdar Star doesn't really have anything to do with the story being told. Even the orb itself doesn't really have anything to do with the story being told if the story is just, hey, how do we get water, basically? I think it's so weird that that Bodai has the ability to provide them water and only does it once and then never again. Like, hey, we're we're set. If this thing can give us water, we're good. But no, no, not again. Okay, great. The whole appearance of Sarah Douglas always throws me. Just like, what is she doing in this movie? What is going on here? And again, there's like all this stuff that was cut out about her character, like talking about it. Because they mentioned a couple times uh, people being genetically modified in the film. And they never show us anybody who's modified, but apparently she is. She is doesn't have any fingernails because she feels that it makes her hands softer. And, you know, it's just like okay, but that's not in the film. That's on the cutting room floor. That's in the screenplay, and it's just like so. This strange character shows up with this giant Terminator machine, and it's like why? Where did this thing come yes, from? In the big James Bond fortress. What movie did this come from? The more I was watching it, I was like, it's like someone saw Mad Max, Terminator, all this stuff, and said, you know what? Can we make a post-apocalyptic film for the kids? And put a young boy in it, and have him interact with a globe, and, and maybe that globe's like the E.T. character, but it'll be cheap, so that, that way we don't have to pay for, like, creature effects. <laughs> and then, um, you know, let's get some cars, but the way we uh, make the grill and then the lights on them, they have, like, mean faces, because I remember, like, the first one that turned up. And then uh, character design, yeah. 
uh, it's just standard stock, like let's rip off uh, SS uniforms, but pad them out because it's the 80s and make them look a little more futuristic. So, and and like Charles Durning's character in here, it, like beyond the voiceover, he really doesn't do all that much. And I'm just like, it seems like such a waste. And one of the funniest things was the Roger Ebert review where he talks about Charles Durning sweats and acts serious or s- sternly in this uh, film. And uh, it, it's another one of him doing that. As he said, it's another episode of Durning sweating and and coming across, you know, serious. So it's uh, so he's trying to add a little weight to it. But like I said, that that opening voiceover really didn't do much for me. It just seems like a mishmash of ideas, and it seems like it may have went through the hands of multiple, multiple, multiple writers before this thing even got shot, and then even more so when it got into the editing room. It feels it feels like maybe when it got to the editing room that somebody said, well, just take out everything that isn't kind of the greatest hits. And I'm not saying what's there you know, it constitutes greatest hits, but it seems like just take out anything that isn't kind of an action beat or doesn't have a giant uh, torture robot or doesn't feature Bodai lighting up. Charles Durning at one point says something to the effect of I don't want to run this place like a prison referring to the orphanage. Like your name is the warden. People <laughs> are like digging holes right. as punishment and wearing prison uniforms. If this isn't a prison I don't know what the prisons look like in Solar Baby World. It's funny that you bring up uh, Roger Ebert's review because I watched the Siskel and Ebert or at the movies. I can't remember which incarnation it was, but their review of it and Gene Siskel twice he mentions how great he thinks the title of this movie is. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Really? Oh, that movie, it just doesn't live up to the title. And I'm like, wait, what? (laughs) What? No one even attempts to explain it. At one point, somebody says, well, why do they call themselves solar babies? That's not intimidating. And the response is like, well, you don't have to be intimidating to win. Oh, well, I guess that mystery is solved. The only thing I could figure out as to why the title is the title is they're lacking water and everything is dry and seems to be sunny. So it's like they're just living in the desert. That's the only thing I can even come up with as to what the title even is related to. Like I said, to me, it sounds like some sort of like Busby Berkeley, um, you know, musical hybrid from the 30s or something, you know, like Sugar Babies. Yeah, we're going to do Sugar Babies, the musical, you know, so it's Solar Babies, the musical. I did, The title doesn't do anything for me at all. Well, we talked about Roller Babies when we were talking about Rollerball. The porn version of, of Rollerball was called Roller Babies from, what, 76, I think it was? So I can't think of Solar Babies without thinking of Roller Babies. And I have to say, Roller Babies, for being an adult film from the 70s, it is much better than Solar Babies is. I think even the production value is a little bit better. I mean, it's just, it doesn't look nearly as cheesy as what we have going on here. You know, I have to say, I think this is probably one of the few films that it doesn't appear that any of us like that's on the show. Like, I've always sort of prided ourselves at the projection booth of spending time on movies that we all actually like instead of tearing them down. But I want to thank Patrick for sort of (laughs) monkey wrenching our show with his sort of offhand remark that we should do this thing. I don't know what a year ago, something like that. Yeah. I can't remember what the last episode was that you were on, but I think, yeah, you threw down the gauntlet and started chanting solar babies and we were all over it like a, like a dirty sheet. Listen, uh, now is as good a time as any to apologize 
And uh, I do feel bad because honestly, I, I've been on, uh, you guys have been nice enough to have me on a few times. And every time I've been on, it's for a movie that I really liked. And it's fun to be positive about and say, this is great. This is great. And I felt bad coming on here, uh, not liking Solar Babies, but I feel a little bit better not being alone. I'm going to throw one more uh, log on the fire here. And uh, the cornball Casio score in this thing is has got to <laughs> oh. be, oh my God, is that bad? I mean, like. You could have a kid in like junior high music class write a better score than this thing. It is so derivative and like on the nose that I mean they may have well just used like library tracks. I mean like the the guy who scored this thing. Uh, I, well, the guy who scored it was Maurice Jar, and he's done a good job with other scores. I'm not sure what the hell was going on here. They're like, yeah. Maurice, make it as cheesy as you possibly can. You have $10. You can score it with that. <laughs> I mean, this well, is a guy who well. scored Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago. I mean, this is this guy has chops, and this Solar Babies thing, no, no. it just you, sticks out. You, you got it wrong. He scored Lawrence of Arizona and Dr. Chicago. That was what he did. And then he also did Solar Babies. No, I'm, I'm serious. It does sound like a Casio score, and it's pretty bad. Uh, this must have been, like we've talked about before, like the cocaine era. That uh, just the money was just going on the cocaine, and they were not spending the money to make a decent film anymore. I think it's interesting that this was released the same year that Brooks Films also released David Cronenberg's The Fly, which is a movie that I really, really love. You know, when I think of Brooks films, there are essentially three movies that come to mind. The Elephant Man, The Fly, and Solar Babies. And I don't feel like the company was around for that much longer, at least in terms of producing kind of high-profile films. And it doesn't seem like Mel Brooks hired many more uh, of his friends and or choreographers to make movies. But yeah, I feel like these two movies could not be more different. One, I feel like, is a really kind of shining example of a genre film. And the other is Solar Babies. Be afraid. Be very afraid. Maybe this is the French mistake. I mean, it really is uh, a mistake of a film. I, I can't get my head around it. I mean, I guess if I was a kid and I saw this on cable and I was like seven, eight, nine years old, I'd be like, oh, it's cool. There's like kids my age and they're fighting these guys and there's this, this orb and stuff. But I don't know if I would like it then either. Well, yeah. I mean, so much of these kids' movies – and so much of the sci-fi that we love, they're just kind of these messiah tales. Like somebody's going to bring freedom, bring water, bring gasoline, whatever it is. Somebody's going to bring what the people need to them. And we really don't even get that because at the end we've got the solar babies kind of hanging out by this ocean, I guess. And there's a, some rain clouds going on, but we don't really get the payoff as far as like now the world is going to change. I mean, I know a lot of people kind of bristle about the end of Dune where it changes, you know, it rains on Arrakis and changes the face of Arrakis forever, you know, but we've got Paul Moadib changing everything. Guy's supposed to be like, what, 15, 16 years old. So he's a hero that kids can, you know, kind of get behind and, you know, he, he, pulls himself up by his bootstraps after his father dies and basically kind of is an orphan. I mean, I know his mother is around and stuff, but he really is kind of there on his own and experiencing these things on his own. And yeah, it's like, there's so many good 
messiah tales and we have all of these i mean this is a messiah tale we've got bodhi as jesus and everything but we don't really have well we don't have a central character you know it's not jason as our main character it's not daniel as our main character it's not tara as our main character and it's not darstar as our main character and it sure as hell ain't fucking metron tug or rabbit so who's our main person we're spread out all over the place so there's nobody here i mean we can kind of relate to some of these people but nobody's on screen enough for us to get behind anybody and nobody has an arc as far as like you know there are a couple times where we kind of hang out with jason jason talks to bodai and there's a little bit of this kind of thing and he you know gets a vision from bodai of what he, you know he might become this kind of stuff but he's he's still to me at least not our main character he's not somebody that i'm invested in enough in this film and especially because he's kind of a brat sometimes that whole thing of like him like you know don't even fucking touch her you know like don't ever look at her again you know and it's just like like, yeah, this is, uh, I don't know. I mean, do, correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but I don't see a main character in the film. Well, the only one I can get is that it's the ball, because the ball actually has an arc, right? Like, it cures the kid, and then in the end, it becomes this sort of mystical force and then ascends into the heavens. So the the kids are basically the same. They just kind of stumble from place to place. But the ball's the only thing I think that even has an arc. And there might be the fundamental flaw of Solar Babies, that the most dynamic character is a ball. So I wanted to read a little quote here from Joe Kane, the uh, Phantom in the movies. Uh, the way he describes this film is as such. A pathetic Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome ripoff working from a script which must have been scrawled in Crayola with every futuristic cliche you could possibly imagine, lacking in originality but rich in brain-dead dialogue when Jamie Gertz snarls, Get out, you creature of filth. Consider that a subliminal message. So, surprisingly, this was not written in Crayola. This was written by... Douglas Anthony Metrov, a fairly well-respected artist. So let's go ahead, take a break, and play an interview with the original writer of Solar Babies right after these messages. Okay, auditions for the new Earth Station Who co-host. Take one, go ahead. Hello, Stonehenge, who takes the Pandora Cup, takes the universe. But, bad news everyone, cause guess who? Ha, listen, you lot you're always in about. It's really very distracting. Could you all just stay still a minute because I am talking? Hmm, not bad. Can you do another? Maybe something less wordy. He's like fire and ice and rage. He's like the night and the storm in the heart of the sun. He's ancient and forever. He burns at the center of time and can see the turn of the universe and he's wonderful. Wow, a little dark. Anything a little lighter? There's no point in being grown up if you can't be childish sometimes. Maybe. Got something a little fresher? I am not a good man. And I'm not a bad man, I am not a hero, and I'm definitely not a president, and, no, I'm not an officer, do you know what I am? I, am, an idiot, with a box and a screwdriver. Not too shabby, can you close this up? Earth Station Who, a fun mashup celebrating over 50 years of the Doctor Who universe. You never know where the TARDIS is going to go next. Earth Station Who podcast can be found at www.earthstationwho.com. Earth Station Who is a proud member of the ESO network. We are up on Facebook, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, or wherever fine podcasts are found. Peace and we are done. 
Did I pass the audition? We'll get back to you. Next. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. But from page to screen, movie So they have, nine times out of ten, they have to send it back to you unopened or just throw it in the garbage can. Things don't always look exactly as we envision our life to look. But sometimes it works out and turns out even better. Gregor Fisher, his bacon number is two because he was uh, appeared with January Jones in Love Actually and January Jones and Kevin Bacon appeared in X-Men First Class together. I've got to say, the very Harold and Kumar 3D Christmas now, that makes me want to rush out. It's about the acting, about the writing. That's really what theatre is. For me. Probably had more names than uh, than Prince or whatever. Never mind, there's a joke for the oldies. Um, oh, like, Who's Prince? Who's oh. he? I'd just like to see uh, Mr. Freeze hiring his bad guys going, right, okay, so you're a psycho, right, can you ice skate? Head over to iTunes, Spreaker and Stitcher and put in the search box from page to screen. I see that you did a whole heck of a lot on the film Driller Killer. Was that your first kind of foray into filmmaking? I had been to film school at UCLA um, for a few years, but um, uh, before working on Driller Killer, I helped Abel Ferrara make his first uh, short film out of film school. You went to UCLA, and how soon after did you move to uh, New York? I yeah I, you know I moved there in nineteen I think it was nineteen seventy or seventy one it was right after leaving UCLA. So you were really kind of coming up in the seventies and eighties art world in New York City, which was a uh, just a tremendous time. Yeah, absolutely. Were you making your own films then as well? No, I was primarily working as a, a an illustrator and designer, and then a fine arts painter. Wait. I'm getting my films mixed up. What you were asking about, Driller Killer? Eventually, I'll ask you about Solar Babies. I just kind of wanted yeah, to get okay. the uh, yeah, the groundwork here. Yeah, I understand. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that's right. Um, I, I I helped Abel Ferrer with Driller Killer, but before that, we made his short film. Also, and the the Driller Killer was shot in my art loft in uh, NoHo in Manhattan. Uh, we shot. Uh, his short film and uh, my apartment actually a few years before that which was on 
in Manhattan on uh, 83rd Street or something like that. You even wrote about your experience as an artist in this time, Anatomy of a Werewolf. Where did you get the title for that? It was a reference to uh, my drug use at the time and how I had sort of been using drugs and alcohol caused this change in my personality and hence, you know, the reference to the werewolf starting off as a normal guy who turns into this sort of crazy monster. Yeah, looking at your CV, seeing um, you know your early work with Ferrara and things like um, that you've done since then, Dark Spiral, Little Eden, things like that, Solar Baby seems like the strangest entry on your resume. How did you get involved with that project? I had helped Abel Ferrara make his first feature film, and, and I had been to film school at UCLA, but... Uh, I moved to New York City and pursued a career, like I said, as an illustrator designer, then as a fine arts painter, primarily because I had no idea how to raise money to make movies. Uh, and then I met Abel Ferrara, and he had raised a small amount, under $100,000, to make Driller Killer. And, uh, you know, because I was, we were best friends, and I helped him make that movie, and I, I was able to learn and experience that you know you could make a feature film for under a hundred thousand dollars so it sort of resurrected my own interest in film and um it was at the end of the 1979 i believe or 1979 or 1980 that i decided to move back to los angeles and um pursue motion pictures and it was interesting because Abel had wanted to make Driller Killer, and I, I, I thought it was sort of a stupid idea, and I really fought him, and I tried to talk him out of it, but he wouldn't be swayed. But when I had an idea to make my own movie, uh, Solar Babies, I don't know, it was just uh, an idea I had about this group of kids who travel, who live in the future and travel around on roller skates, and, and they, they escape from their orphanage and so forth. And so I pretty much invented the whole story and at the time roller skating outdoor roller skating was just taking off and it started on the west coast because on the venice beach boardwalk which was originally built for uh I, i'm sorry the venice beach bicycle path which was initially built for bicycles to ride along the beach but then the the uh, first outdoor roller skates came out and that became a huge fad and my friend Robert Glenn Ketchum, who is a world-renowned landscape photographer now, came to visit me in New York, and he brought his outdoor roller skates. I happened to have a pair of roller skates from an uh, an 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 out an indoor actually an indoor roller rink. And so we, when he was staying with me in Manhattan, we would go out at night and skate the streets of. Manhattan, and so I, that's probably where my idea came from about the these kids in an orphanage in the future who travel outdoors on roller skates. Except I took it a step further. I invented skates that would allow them to skate over dirt and sand. They had the original skates that I invented had large, sort of knobby dirt tires, so they could go over dirt and sand. Um, they didn't actually end up using those for the movie, but that's, that's another story. So how did it kind of become from your mind to the page and eventually the screen? 
I left New York, like I said, in about 1980 and moved to Los Angeles. I determined to get my movie made because we had made Driller Killer for $100,000. I thought, well, I can make a movie for $100,000. And uh, in my mind, I was thinking it doesn't have to be an exploitation film. Like Driller Killer can actually be sort of a family movie. And so I wrote the first story to be a very low, low budget family movie. So I moved to Los Angeles and I actually had a 32 page treatment with that I'd written uh, that included drawings. It probably had, I don't know, a dozen pencil drawings sort of visualizing the story as, as it went on. I peddled that treatment you know, the best I could. I didn't really know anyone in Hollywood um, for a couple of years and it wasn't really getting anywhere. And then I was actually left town and was, went up to Sun Valley, Idaho, cause where I used to go for recreational purposes back then. And I was climbing up this mountain and I was really, I think, pumping a lot of extra oxygen to my brain because I suddenly had this idea to turn solar babies into a slideshow presentation. So I went to back to Los Angeles and I recruited a bunch of kids from the Venice Boardwalk who were uh, uh, avid outdoor roller skaters and and uh, a woman named Peggy Chain helped me. She she approached companies and we got they gave us free uh, gear so we could sort of concoct these futuristic costumes for these kids that consisted of backpacks and hockey padded hockey pants and helmets and stuff like that. Um, and so we we dressed up these kids in in costume, took them out on uh, several different locations. And uh, my friend Francis Wolf was a photographer, and he um, he did motor drive action skills uh, stills of these kids skating through these various locations. And then I assembled these stills into a 12-minute computerized slide presentation. It was Again, computers were still sort of brand new. Um, I mean, they I don't think the first Macs even existed, but um, somehow this, this this friend of mine was involved in this new technology where you could you could automate a slideshow presentation and and uh, it was somewhat crudely computerized. And so I put together this eleven minute slide presentation. And I wrote original music for it, and it was um, shot on 35 millimeter film, so it was essentially the same film stock um, that was used to shoot motion pictures, so the slideshow could be projected onto a full-size theater screen. Around the same time, I met a fellow named Mark Johnson, who went on to win the Academy Award for Rain Man, and he he produced all of Barry Levinson's movies. And then his most recent coup was he was the producer of Breaking Bad. So he's a very big, very successful uh, Los Angeles, you know, Hollywood producer today. But back then he was just starting out and he had worked as a second assistant director to Mel Brooks on a film. And so he thought Mel Brooks might be interested in my movie. And so we, we went to see Mel Brooks. We went to see a couple of other people at the studios too, but Mel, we showed it to Mel, showed the slideshow to Mel Brooks in a movie theater and he was completely blown away. We went directly to his office after 
watching the presentation, and we shook hands and made a deal to to make the movie. Did he stay involved throughout the entire process? Yes, he did. His film, Brooks Films, uh, created, uh, produced Solar Babies. He had, he had had a lot of success with Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. So he eventually set up a company to make movies other than his own comedies. And the first movie, the, and that was Brooks Films. Brooks Films. The first film that Brooks Films made was Elephant Man by David Lynch. And then they made a film called Francis, which is the story of Francis Farmer. And then, and then he made Solar Babies. And yeah, they made the whole thing from start to finish. How did uh, Alan Johnson get involved? Alan Johnson had been uh, Mel Brooks' choreographer for many years, and he was just part of Mel's sort of entourage. And I think Mel felt he owed him a favor or something so what happened was i you know i had gone to la with the idea of making a hundred thousand dollar movie and then when it by the time i ended up with mel brooks the idea was to spend about two million dollars on this movie and mel had actually hired me to 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 direct the film based on the power of my slide presentation so for several years, I was developing the film and 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 uh, pulling all the elements together. Mel gave me a bungalow first on the Francis Ford Coppola zoetrope lot, then he gave me an office at the 20th Century Fox lot. And for actually for three years, I was developing the movie, uh, writing the screenplay and doing storyboard sketches and costume designs and all this stuff. While this was happening, uh, it turns out that the people in Mel's camp who were very close to him, which included Alan Johnson and Mel's secretary at the time. Um, I forget her name. Irene, Eileen, Irene, something. It'd be Irene Walzer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they were, they were really, really excited about Solar Babies. They kept telling Mel that, Mel, um, this is going to be a great, great film for you, and this can be your your Star Wars, you know, because Star Wars was really big back then. They said this this can be your Star Wars, but it it can't be uh, a little two million dollar movie that Metro directs because Metro is the first time director. It has to, we want to make it at least a twenty million dollar movie and get you know uh, all established uh, crew and director and so forth. And Mel didn't want to do that. He believed in my vision. He kept he fought them for three years. He kept saying, no, 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 uh, this is Metro's film. I want him to make it. He's got the vision. Um, and But finally, they kept after him. And after three years, he finally caved in. He said, okay, you can take the movie. So he essentially turned over the movie to the to this group of 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 people that were sort of, you know, his core production team, I guess. And and the first thing they did was fire me, and they took over the film, and they said, look, we're going to hire the best people available to make this movie, and and uh, you can just, and we're going off to Spain to make it, and you're not going to come, and so just, you just be a nice boy and stay here, and we're going to, we're going to go off and and ruin your film. They didn't say what they say it that way, but that's what ended up happening. The, the film they made was very, very different than my vision. You must have been devastated. 
to say the least, yeah. What were the differences? What was the original vision of Solar Babies that uh, you had? If you're familiar with uh, George Lucas's first feature film, THX 1138, you may recall that it's a film that's very stylized and it's, it all takes place underground and everything is sort of white and all the uh, costumes are white and everything, all the equipment's white and everything is white, white, white. So it was this very stylized um, look. My idea was to do sort of the kids version of THX 1138. So my world was very similar. The kids uh, were in this very stylized world and they, their their costumes were this white, mostly like this white padded hockey gear and helmets and stuff. The costumes were all white. And um, when they made their version of the movie, they they sort of tried to make it contemporary with the times, and that was when graffiti and street art was sort of becoming prominent, and so, and tie-dye was prominent, so they did it exactly the opposite of what I had done, instead of being this sort of all-white THX 1138 motif, they had, they had, they put the kids in this tie-dye outfits in this graffiti-covered world, and so it was all very sort of busy and colorful, as opposed to my sort of stark white look. And um, but otherwise, this story was sort of similar to my initial story. My, basically, my story was that these kids grow up in an orphanage. They sneak out at night to play a game with um, on roller skates and a hockey sticks and a ball. One night they find this magical glowing ball and they incorporate that into their game and then they start communicating with this magical sphere and then someone steals it from them and they uh, they leave the orphanage, they run away from the orphanage to go and they go on this adventure to get their sphere back and that's essentially the story that was produced but uh, just in a very sort of different style. There's the one character called Metron. Was he kind of a stand-in for you? I don't know. They 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 made up that characters. I think I had written a couple of versions of the script, and I had actually I wasn't really a writer back then. Uh, didn't really know what I was doing, so I, and I incorporated the help of a friend by the name of Waylon Green, who was a very prominent writer in Hollywood at the time. He was. He was sort of legendary for writing The Wild Bunch for Sam Peckinpah. And uh, uh, I had a friend who was friends with Waylon, and uh, so she introduced me. And so I recruited Waylon to help me write the first screenplay. Actually, it was, it was not the first screenplay. Mel Brooks had hired some kid to write the first screenplay, and he really botched it up and no one liked the screenplay and Mel Brooks ended up throwing it in the trash so I I, I asked if I could tr try my hand at writing the screenplay and Mel hollered at me at the top of his lungs that yes I could <laughs> write the screenplay but he guaranteed me it would end up in the trash can in five minutes and um, I like I said I recruited Waylon Green to help me write the screenplay and it was everyone fell in love with that screenplay it was it, res, it uh, resurrected the project which was on the verge of dying completely and um, 
so that but uh, Mel Brooks didn't own the screenplay, even though he owned the, he had purchased the story from it. He didn't own this new screenplay, so he he had to pay me, and he had to pay Waylon Green. Well, paying me was no problem because I was you know very just starting off, and uh, you know he could get away with giving me writer's skills minimum. But Waylon Green, like I say, was very prominent writer and highly paid writer, so they had to negotiate a much larger purchase price. Uh, to get Waylon Green's approval to buy the story. And um, so at that point, I think Mel Brooks sort of felt like he, he sort of had to get his money's worth. So he, he and Waylon Green rewrote the script uh, together without me. And um, that's when they came up with, I think, the name Metron. What was your working relationship like with Waylon Green? Oh, uh, we had a good working relationship. Um, you know, we like I say, my I think my girlfriend was friends with his girlfriend, and so we we were sort of friends, you know. And um, the working relationship was such that, um, you know, when he agreed to help me with the script, we he 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 said, "Well, look, if I help you with this, you you have to promise that you know you won't that." You know, we we will sell it together. You won't go go back and try to sell it on your own. So I agreed to that, and um, I I essentially would write twenty pages at a time, and I would show the pages to Waylon Green, and he would read them, and he would go, uh, "Yeah, that's that's pretty good. You're on track." And then I would go off and write another twenty pages and show it back to him, and he said, "Well, yeah, this looks good. You're on track." except maybe you want to, you know, adjust this little part here or whatever. And so he made a few minor suggestions for that first draft, and that's what we turned in, and that was the draft that resurrected the project. He didn't really participate that much in actual the actual writing. He sort of supervised me. But when, when Mel uh, had to pay him a lot of money to get his rights to the film, to the story, that's when... He he got Waylon Green much more involved, and and they completely rewrote the initial draft that everyone loved, and um, turned it into something else. Why uh, is a, a mystery that <laughs> remains to this day. What did you do once they took your project away from you? I became murderously angry. <laughs> I was I was pretty upset, you know, for quite a few years. I was upset um as you know they it was my baby they took it away they wouldn't let me be involved in any way shape or form um i i'd been a designer my whole life i i turned in beautiful set designs pop designs costume designs they completely ignored all of it uh threw it all away they like i said they said well we're going to hire the best people in the business and they did hire a lot of really good people but um i i think I think the truth is uh, Alan Johnson was not real inspiring as a director. He didn't really know what he was doing. He didn't really have a vision. And um, I think everyone just sort of mailed in their work. Did this sour you on making movies for a long time? Uh, No, not really. Uh, I was determined to make another movie, and I just started writing more stories. And I wrote story after story for many, many years trying to get another project launched. And I ended up making my first um, feature film, Dark Spiral, in 1991, I think it was. 
I was curious about that because um, I've seen different years listed for Dark Spiral. I wasn't sure if it, um, you know, how long that one took to make. Oh, we shot that in ten days in my apartment in Los Angeles, West Los Angeles. Yeah, it, uh, I don't, I don't know where you'd see. I think the time, the year on IMDb is correct. Yeah, because I saw um, later '90s for that one, so I wasn't sure what the length was between Solar Babies and Dark Spiral. Yeah, it was quite a few years different. Okay. So you were um, able to get back into um, filmmaking and everything, but you haven't just stuck to filmmaking. You still do just a ton of different things when it comes to making art. Well, I started off as a fine arts painter, and I've always continued painting. um, And at the same time, um, you know, I was... My strategy was to to sell another screenplay, and... um, and the idea was that if the next screenplay were a successful movie, uh, unlike Solar Babies, um, then I would be able to direct the next movie, uh, which has been a successful strategy for a lot of guys in Hollywood. But um, it, um, that that was my plan. It didn't exactly work out that way. But uh, but yeah, I've released a documentary film recently. It's you can find it on my website. It's called Metro: A Life in the War Zones of American Art, and in it. If you want to watch that, it it shows you everything that I've sort of been through in order to make movies, which included first, you know, learning how to write movies, to write the stories, and then learning how to actually make the movies. And then uh, in the documentary, I explained that, you know, Hollywood sort of stopped buying original screenplays and they started buying novels. And like a lot of other screenwriters, I switched to writing novels and, um, and went through that whole thing with the publishing world, and uh, you know, all to uh, to me, I you know, I saw movies as an opportunity to make paintings that that moved and made sound and talked and so forth. It was so it was really sort of um, an advanced form of painting for me, uh, and that's that's what I was really after. Me, it was all about making art, but you know. Uh, movies are expensive to make. Paintings are not expensive. I could, I could still create art, you know, no matter where I was, no matter what I was doing, while I was trying to get the movies made. So yeah, I, I keep busy. Can you tell me about the Goddess film? Uh, it's just a short film project that I want to make, and I'm still working on that. It has a strong environmental theme, but um, um. I don't just you know I look I've written 40 over 40 stories over the years so I have I you know I'm very prolific and have a very active imagination so you know I create stuff I create stories I create images looks styles Thanks to Mr. Metroff for taking the time to talk to us this week. We're talking about solar babies. Gladly, maybe, 
maybe not, as you've heard from the first part of the discussion. <laughs> so, so here we are. I don't know where to go with this, Mike, because I feel kind of stuck like the characters. I have no arc this week. Metrov, fantastic guy. I was really glad that we were able to talk to him this week. I was you could probably hear from my reaction that I was kind of gobsmacked when he was the one that came up with the title Solar Babies, which seems like the first mistake. But, you know, he did have a vision going into this, and his mentor, Waylon Green, helped write this screenplay. He's also credited. And Waylon Green, I mean, this the guy wrote Sorcerer. You know, the guy worked with Peckinpah. So we've got this guy with a, a great pedigree, and we still get this, like I said, I, I, I don't think the script is perfect by any means, but I definitely think that it was a much better step than what we ended up with. I think what we ended up with was a big misstep. But unfortunately, I have a feeling that we're going to get a lot of shit from this episode because there are probably people that grew up with solar babies that will fall on their swords about how great this movie is. Again, here we go. This is where I'm going to have my rant about nostalgia, where you got to step back. And take a look at it as an adult and go, you know, when I was seven, eight, nine years old, it was fine. Now that I'm 37, it doesn't work. And that's fine. Like, just it, just reassess it. Take a minute. Take a breath. And, um, and realize it's also the same with the um, first Star Wars movie. Because I hate that Always got to go to the Star always Wars, gotta, don't always you? Always got to go there. I'm sorry. I was trying to think of other movies that were kind of along these lines as far as things that people might be in love with that maybe aren't that great or maybe they are that great i mean when i was growing up i saw a lot of crap on cable that i can imagine people were really down with like um i remember liking explorers a lot and i remember liking cloak and dagger a lot but I'm not sure if they would hold up today. What are some of the ones that you guys watched? Rob, I know you watch Hamburger a lot, but probably before that, maybe before your Clockwork Orange phase, <laughs> were some of the ones that you would watch that oh. maybe might not hold up these days? Well, you know, I didn't have cable, so most of the time it was movies that were rented, and a lot of it was stuff that my folks wanted to watch, so none of it really had a big impact on me. I can't really think of anything that doesn't hold up. I mean, there's some stuff that's dated, you know, like I used to watch the first airplane on kind of a constant loop uh ferris bueller's day off kind of on a constant loop but i can't really think of anything that was sort of of that era that i was so enamored with that maybe doesn't hold up i mean i know you don't like ferris bueller but you do love airplane so but it's um you know i really can't think of anything i mean to me i guess the, the only thing that would be things that i liked as a kid that don't hold up would be maybe going and looking at the cartoons that were on you know like i used to watch gi joe and i used to watch you know um you know uh, other kids shows in that era and i'm sure if i watched them now i'd be like oh my god that's terrible like this isn't any good at all I definitely grew up on movies like Solar Babies. If it was, you know, science fiction or fantasy in the 80s, I was all over it. Um, so, you know, uh, Flash Gordon, Time Bandits, Dark Crystal, The Last Unicorn, Dragon Slayer. I mean, any all of these movies were those were my go to's. Ice Pirates uh, was another one, which. Ice Pirates might not hold up. Um, so I've gone back and rewatched some of them. Uh, Cloak and Dagger was a big one for me. You had mentioned that. And I, I actually went back and rewatched that one maybe a year or two ago. And it didn't totally hold up for me. It was a lot slower than I remembered it being. Um, 
because I, I, I write a, a column over at my site called It Came From The 80s and I kind of go back and look at, you know, so much genre stuff, so much science fiction and fantasy was so popular in the 80s. Uh, it's the whole reason that a movie like Solar Babies kind of is able to exist. But so much of it came out that I like kind of going back to look at it. And some of it, like Cloak and Dagger, like Labyrinth, I, there's a few that I don't think hold up as an adult. And it's it can be difficult to divorce, divorce myself from my own nostalgia for it. But then there are titles like I think Dragon Slayer and even Flash Gordon, where actually as an adult, I have a greater appreciation for them because I'm able to understand them in a way that I didn't as a kid. And I don't want to, you know, if people love Solar Babies, people love Solar Babies. Like, I can't argue with that. But I feel like you could really only love Solar Babies if you grew up with it and you have nostalgic feelings for it. Because I just don't think there's enough of a movie there to grab onto that you could, as a, as an adult, as Rob said, say, yeah, this movie works. I would love to hear an argument for, for why this movie works if you think it does. But uh, I feel like nostalgia is the only thing that might keep fans of this movie on board yeah i agree with you on that but uh coincidentally enough you know ice pirates didn't hold up but the porn version of it has ass pirates well it's bizarre that you bring up ice pirates since i just posted the space herpes scene on our facebook group because my wife keeps saying you should cover ice pirates and i'm just like why <laughs> why would we want to cover that that movie got kind of a big bump when um Guardians of the Galaxy came out last year. A lot of people were all of a sudden saying, oh, yeah, it has kind of an Ice Pirates vibe. Like, when did we all agree to remember Ice Pirates? You weren't at the meeting? No, no one called me. I own that movie on DVD. I do, too. I don't own a lot of movies on DVD. This is the part where I should be like, you guys should do Ice Pirates for the show. I'll totally come on. There are so many good character actors in that movie too ron perlman for fuck's sake i've been trying to get ron perlman for years yeah i don't think i can get anybody from this movie but we'll see and maybe we'll have you back patrick on a (laughs) that would be great (laughs) ice pirates episode i've always wanted to do krull because krull is one of those movies for me that i grew up with and i think still holds up now if i can get liam neeson to come on the show to talk about krull I think that'd be pretty fun. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. I will look for you. I will find you. And I will kill you. If folks want to hear us talk a little bit more about roller skating in the future, I mean, we we got into this quite a bit when we were talking about rollerball and just that weird... 80s into the 90s things. I mean, but there was that whole spate of movies where rollerblades were the thing. And I don't know if you guys have seen, my favorite of all of those is Prayer of the Roller Boys because it is probably the most ridiculous out of all of them. I would put that up here with Solar Babies, but I think it might have a little bit more of an edge to it. It's definitely not a kid's movie. At least it has Patricia Arquette going for it. And Corey Haim, man. (laughs) Sure. I've seen Prayer of the Roller Boys a handful of times. I caught it on cable one night. I was driving from North Carolina back to Michigan, and I stopped in West Virginia. I'm at this Motel 8 with a friend of mine, and we turn on the TV, and it's Prayer of the Roller Boys. We could not turn off the television. We had to watch it all the way through. First time we'd ever seen it, we're just like, what the hell is this thing? And all we could remember was Day of the Rope. The next day, that's all we kept saying was Day of the Rope. (laughs) 
<laughs> the roller skating thing seems to be just one of several ideas in Solar Babies where they just sat around like, eh, what might people do in the future? I don't know. Roller skate? Yeah, nobody's going to walk anymore. They're going to roller skate. And they change just certain words. So it's not it's not the police. It's the e-police. And instead of saying, they say oath instead of like, I swore, I swore that I would do this. They say like, I oathed that I would do this or, and I don't think it ends up in the film, but I know in the script, instead of saying smoke, they call it fuming. And uh, it's just apparently 4,000 words. Only a few words and colloquial expressions will change. Everything else is going to be similar. Oh, and we'll have skates. Well, we don't say smoke anymore. We say vape. So I guess they were kind of close. Solar Babies is telling the future. One thing I really wanted to hit on real quick before we go to our uh, preview for next week's episode is I was so happy and also at the same time a little sad to see Alexi Sale show up in this thing. Alexi Sale hasn't shown up in a whole lot of movies. He's there in Indiana Jones and Last Crusade for about five seconds. Um, But he really, as far as movies I've seen anyway, he hasn't been in a whole lot, but... For me, he will always be the character that he played in The Young Ones as the um, the landlord, the very scummy landlord <laughs> that would come in. Uh, I think it was uh, Jer- Jersey Balowski was his name. and But then he would kind of change every once in a while. He would be like his, his brother or his cousin, and he would just kind of show up. You know, along with these guys, he was a member of the comic strip presents. So he was down with all these guys who were in the young ones, but he never really seemed to get the respect I felt that he deserved. And um, I'll never forget his wonderful song about Dr. Martin's boots that was on in a young ones episode. Uh, this is the band Radical Posture, and uh, my name's Alexi, Yuri Gagarin, Siege of Stalingrad, Glorious Five Year Plan, Sputnik Tractor, Moscow Dynamo, Back Four, Bolovsky. <laughs> My dad was a bit of a communist, you know what I mean? <laughs> Do you know you're a spitting image of our landlord, Jersey? Yeah, he's, uh, he's my uncle, actually, you know. That's incredible, that. You're as like as two peas. We're actually going to do a number now. There was a song in the charts recently about racial harmony, um, about black and white people living together side by side in perfect racial harmony together on pianos. (laughs) I I might be a bit stupid, like, you know what I mean? But um, I know the pianos aren't going to solve nothing, you know what I mean? There's only one thing that unites us, one thing that we all have in common. What is it? What is that one thing that unites us? It's not class or ideology, colour, creed or roots. The only thing that unites us is Dr. Martin's boots. Dr. Martin gave his boots to the world so that everybody could be free. They're classless, matchless, he was just a from from retail for only £19.99p. Pretty soon everybody be wearing those boots with the airflow cells. And your boots will have a meeting and your boots will take control. Thanks to Dr. Martin, everybody move to one beat. Thanks to Dr. Martin, they'll be dancing in the street. No, don't you want me? Okay, Boots, do your stuff! Dr. Martin's, Dr. Martin's, Dr. Martin's boots. 
So just a little shout out to Alexi Sale, underappreciated and underused in Solar Babies. So let's go ahead. We're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. next week to talk about Under the Skin with co-host of the Faculty of Horror, Alexandra West. But before we go, I want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Patrick Bromley. Thanks for taking the time with us. And what the F is happening over at F This Movie lately, sir? Uh, gosh, guys, I thought we have six more hours to talk about this, right? That's right. Every show on the projection booth must be <laughs> a minimum of four hours long. Um, I've got another 16 interviews. Uh, I've got the second assistant director. We have, that we we have the caterer this week and um, the, uh, the the honey wagon driver. If you know what a honey wagon driver is, feel free to um, tweet at us and tell us because I'm not going to ruin the surprise for you. You know who you need to get is uh, Maurice Jarre's intern who actually wrote the score for this film. <laughs> um, I've just gotten a new Casio keyboard. <laughs> And I really wanted to use it. I wanted to show the future through this crappy keyboard. <laughs> um, anyway, thank you guys so much for having me on. Uh, F this movie. Yeah, we do a podcast every week. Uh, usually they come out on Wednesdays and we're writing reviews and content and stuff over at fthismovie.net. Check it out when you're done uh, spending all of your time with the projection booth. That's right. The other five hours of the Solar Babies podcast. That's right. Well, thanks again, Patrick, for coming on the show, and uh, definitely a little different this week than we've done with you before. This is no bad lieutenants. Wait, Herzog didn't make this film? <laughs> you, you wish that he would, didn't you? It would be trying. such a better movie.
What I was trying to accomplish with solar babies was an ecstatic <laughs> truth about the loss of water in the world and how children will suffer the most. Can I hear Herzog say Bodai once? I liked Bodai. He, to me, was the Christ metaphor. I was going to call it Lodi in honor of the CCR song, but they told me the rights were hung up. Oh, Lord, I'm stuck in Lodi again. There you go. Go down Green River. If you like what you heard today and want to return the favor, head on over to wherever you get the podcast. Be sure to leave some feedback. We especially appreciate your iTunes review. Each one of those gets us a step closer into taking over the world and creating our own race of super solar babies. Of atomic solar babies, which will conquer the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media, let's make some noise.